What is America's stake in this conflict? What's the history and moral significance of what we're seeing? And how should we assess the latest developments? Today on New Idea Live, we're going to be taking a look at some of these uh, developments. And with me today are Ankar Gatte, uh, Nico Sitarokopoulos will be joining us in a moment, and our CEO, Tal Tafani, who's going to share some of his experiences from living in Israel and being in the IDF. I thought we should start by uh, summarizing where things are since Saturday. So on Saturday morning, we had a special live stream episode of New Idea Live to respond to the uh, outbreak of fighting. And since then, a lot has come out. And I thought we should just touch on some of the, the latest developments. I'm sure people are familiar with what's going on in the news, but some of the numbers are truly horrifying. So the death toll so far on the Israeli side is above 1,000. I've seen numbers around 1,200. And I did a calculation. And if you do a per capita death toll, that is roughly nine times the equivalent of what the United States suffered on 9-11. And for a small country, that is a significant impact. That is, is I think, catastrophic is not too strong a word to describe it. Other things that we've seen since so far is that uh, the Hamas fighters or troops, however you think of them, they have, uh, it, the ones that infiltrated towns nearby Gaza have committed acts that are really difficult to, to, to believe, killing, uh, filling themselves, killing people, burning people alive, beheading people, and accounts of rape and massacres, just complete uh, atrocities left and right. The, one of the things we should talk about today, and we'll get right into this soon, is that among the other things that Hamas fighters did, is not only kill people, take them hostages. They took at least 150 Israeli hostages back into Gaza to use them, presumably as human shields, along with others that they will use that for. So then a couple of other things to say uh, in developments since Saturday. Uh, there has been an interesting... Uh, reaction from different parts of the culture. So both in Europe and North America, a couple of things you might have seen and that we should talk about is the reaction in some of the European capitals that you've seen uh, famous buildings illuminated with Israeli flag in solidarity. We've also seen rallies uh, in support of Israel, but also rallies in support of Hamas, which I think is a really important issue to talk about. So those are some of the developments, and, and I'm sure there's more that we uh, could touch on, but that's just some context for getting into this topic. I thought we should start on CARB by talking for a minute or so about why we think this is so significant, why we're devoting so much attention to it, and why we will be doing more coverage and, and analysis of this uh, th this war, I think, is the, is the way to think of it. So how do you think of this in terms of its significance as a development? How do you compare it to other things going on in terms of foreign policy? Well, in a nutshell, this is a major, major development in the Middle East. And nobody after 9-11, you couldn't actually before 9-11 think this, but no American after 9-11 can think what happens in the Middle East does not impact the United States and might not impact the United States here at home. Um, so if, if you can't make that connection, it, it, and you might not be able to make because our media is so bad to make that connection. But if you can't make that com connection, it basically means you can't remember what happened in 9-11. And if you just fast forward a little bit, you brought up the atrocities that are coming to light of what happened in Israel. If this doesn't remind you of ISIS, 
Um, again, it's you have not you don't have any awareness of what is going on in the Middle East. And if you can't remember that ISIS inspired fighters have attacked and killed Americans here in America, then you can't understand. I mean, you're again, like you're ig completely ignorant of what is going on. But anyone who has some knowledge of this has to be able to see, yeah, there is a connection and an immediate connection to the United States. I wanted to add to that in, from the perspective of the Ayn Rand Institute and what our priorities are. So we spent a lot of time bringing people to Ayn Rand's books, helping them discover her ideas and educate themselves and learn with us and help them understand the significance of our thoughts. So the natural question someone might have is, what relevance does this have to learning about the Fountainhead or reading Atlas Shrugged or exploring Ayn Rand's ideas more deeply? And my answer to that is, Ayn Rand's philosophy is a philosophy for thinking and living in this world. And if it's not going to help you understand the world and navigate it and make evaluations that guide you, then you're not using it properly. It's not really a tool for you. And part of what we see as our mission is to help people understand that philosophy and not just understand it in a book learning sort of way, but understand it in a living, breathing, everyday thinking model where it is part of how you engage with the world. And that this is when you encounter major events like this, and you mentioned 9-11, the rise of ISIS, and now this one, and there are many others we could talk about. This is exactly the kind of event that tests your best knowledge, your best thinking and your premises. Are you able to understand this? Are you able to take the right course of action, advocate for the right ideas? Or do you lapse into some irrational ideas or the, the conventional perspective and my view is this is part of what makes the Institute such an important organization. We're the only ones who are willing to make many of these points. And our view is distinctive and in fact, unique on many of these points. And that is, it's important that there be a voice for reason on these issues, a voice that speaks by applying the, the ideas of objectivism to these issues. So to me, it's, it's, it goes hand in glove with the idea of bringing people to Ayn Rand's ideas and helping them understand it and use them to understand the world. Anything you want to add to that before we dive in? Yeah, to just make it a little more concrete. Most people think the problem with Israel and the United States is they act too, um, they, they act too strongly in their self-interest. And our view is that neither Israel nor the United States, either one understands what is that in their self-interest and has the moral courage to stand up in the name of their self-interest. And the reason they don't is because of the philosophical forces um, that have been dominant for more than a century that tells you what's actually in your self-interest is to be somebody who exploits others and so on not engage in trade, not engage in development. It's, it's the caricature of like an Al Capone. That's what it means to be. So who wants to do that? And anybody who has some rational understanding of what is in your self-interest and so in your national self-interest, how dare you assert your own self-interest? You're supposed to be self-sacrificial. The United States is supposed to send aid to every two-bit country around the world, not assert its own interest. That is immoral. It's part of what happened after 9-11. There were some elements of Bush saying, yeah, we're going to assert our self-interest. And it, the world was like, how dare you do that? And Bush backed down. Um, so the, the, the driving forces here are moral philosophical. So Tal, let's bring you in. Uh, welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you. So your background, I think, 
gives you a unique perspective in both your experiences. So just tell us a bit, where did you grow up and how does that connect? How does that relate to what we're seeing right now? So I grew up in uh, the 70s in uh, Be'er Sheva, which is uh, uh, the southern part of Israel that is very close. Uh, I think it's like 20, 25 minute drive to the to Gaza. <clears throat> I remember that as a, growing as, uh, up as a kid, there's a lot of people speaking, you know, Arab, uh, Arabic around me and that the, the biggest uh, construction companies were owned by people from Gaza. Uh, actually, my parents started building a house when I was uh, in, the, in, the, in the late 70s and it, we had uh, people from Gaza uh, building that house. Um, and the relationship, and I actually remember my father going to Gaza to get some groceries that are very unique, that you can only get in Gaza. So people were going in, going out. It was prosperous. It was, um, you know, a very peaceful um, relationship that we had with, with that. Uh, I remember a lot of people, um, you know, in the streets, in the markets, speaking Arab. We knew that they're from, the, from Gaza and even uh, other territories. Um, later on, when I was in the army, uh, I was in flight academy, but we were posted in Gaza for about a month. And uh, that was a, quite an experience to be there in the 80s. Uh, it changed, of course, it was uh, more militant, but uh, still nothing like what we're seeing today. So it allowed me to see the, uh, if you will, the deterioration from the 70s to the 80s to what we have right now, as far as the fundamentalist, you know, Islamist uh, taking over uh, and completely changing the fabric of that society. So you said you were you were stationed there for a while. What was it like being in the IDF in Gaza? What kind of reception did you get? What was it? What were you doing there? If you can tell us, it was very interesting, very complicated. We were in Gaza. We were in a like a um, you know. A, like a, a building that uh, I don't know how we took over, but this is where we were stationed. It was not a military base. We're just sleeping there in sleeping bags. And uh, we were, um, you know, fighting riots uh, of kids and teenagers throwing rocks. Um, that was what we were there to do. Um, and there were at one point there was a curfew because there were too many rocks uh, being thrown at soldiers. And I remember that every time there was a demonstration, there was a demonstration against the demonstration. I mean, uh, it felt like a, people had a lot to lose. You know, they had lives, they had businesses. And every time those kids would ca come out and, you know, stir some trouble, there were a lot of people that pay the price because they had to shut down their stores and there was a curfew the next, you know, the next day or something like that. And I remember walking down the street with my, you know, my uniform and my gun and, People from the stores offering us, you know, candy or just food or things like that. The, the, the atmosphere was completely different than what it is right now. Um, so I think a lot has changed. Um, uh, again, a complete deterioration of people have uh, having less to lose. Uh, civilization was basically pushed out. Uh, it feels like out of Gaza. Um, yeah, so it was it was a very tough um, service time back then. I wouldn't say it was easy. We were happy to get out, uh, but it was nothing like what we're seeing today. I remember there was um, a case where there was a threat that there was one handgun in one of the in the houses there, and the special forces had us back them up to come in and take it out 
just a suspicion that there is a handgun somewhere, just to give you an idea of how, um, you know, in what world we're living right, right now when they have missiles and much more than that. Just one more question for you before we let you go. Um, you must be in touch with some uh, friends and family back in Israel. What, what is the mood as you're reading it? How are people reacting now for four or five days now since it began? It's horrific. Um, I've been talking to, you know, immediate family and the kids in the family. I mean, I can describe the, the, the state of shock and despair. Um, I think more than anything, the surprise and the realization that the IDF is not as prepared and or maybe as strong as, uh, you know, Israelis think. I, I think the IDF is much stronger than what people realize, but it's not showing. And uh, so there's a there's a shock, the state of shock. I think the psychological effects on the population are long term. Um, on the other hand, you see a lot of people recruiting themselves, just people from all over the world coming back to Israel to um, enlist themselves and try to to help with everything. The the amounts of food and and support that we're seeing from the civil uh, population to the soldiers is unprecedented. Uh, so I think the spirit is you know it's dark times for Israel, but the spirit is still there. The spirit of the civilization, um, the values that Israel created over the years, this wonderful state, um, um, it's going to defend itself. I'm sure that it'll be. I hope it will be some kind of a turning point in the attitude towards how we deal with this conflict. And one final thought, I, I just to build on what you're saying, I, I know your background is in high tech and in startups, and that to me is the way people should be thinking about Israel. That, that's the, one of the unique features of it. It's, it's the hotbed of innovation and entrepreneurialism and, and progress. And I think that is, it's important to keep that in mind because it's, it's, what the what the best people are able to accomplish in a society that protects freedom to some degree that should define it, not the fact that it's unfortunately beset by enemies that are perpetually trying to destroy it. So to me, it's useful just as a reframing. And I know it's not the time to talk about that because people are dying. That's not the thing to focus on. But I think it's important that that is part of what is being defended. It's the best minds doing really important work, moving civilization forward. And that's part of what it means to think about the stakes here. It isn't merely um, people fighting over land as it's often seen. It's people fighting over lives they've built, companies they've built, innovation and knowledge that's being grown in a place where all the factors are against that. I mean, that's part of how I think of what's going on there. And just to add to that, Ilan, uh, I don't know if, you know, I've, you know, I'm guessing a lot of the viewers have not been to Israel. I mean, this, the Israeli sense of life, every time I go back, to visit, uh, it's just evident in the, the minute you step, you know, off the plane in Israel, uh, Tel Aviv is the most amazing city with the best culture and the best food and, and people out in the streets celebrating life. So yeah, the, the startup nation that Israel is, but also on all, you know, walks of life in Israel is the, the, the love of life, the Israeli, uh, the Israeli celebrating life, celebrating themselves, uh, is a wonderful things to things to see, uh, and and uh, you know, unfortunately, it's not going to be like this for quite some time now. But uh, there, there's there's a lot that Israel is, uh, and Israel a lot, has a lot to celebrate. Of course, it's science and it's innovation, but also this kind of sense of life that is that has created 
in in that in, environment uh and uh, that is something that i hope will be back soon to the streets of tel aviv and other places in israel well thanks for joining Talon and sharing your experience uh we'll, we'll have you back sometime soon let's bring Thank on you. uh nikos thanks hi nikos hi so let's let's turn now to some of the developments and, and try to unpack what's happening and, and offer a perspective on it that I think only we can offer. Um, so one of the things that's happened and a lot of people reacting to this is what you described earlier, Ankar, is these scenes of carnage, the, the kinds of brutality that remind us of ISIS. So if people can think back a few years, Islamic State rose up in parts of Syria and Iraq it was a massive geographic uh, territory that it held. And that is what it became famous for, just complete barbarism. And that is what people are now hearing on the news from what Hamas did in various towns around the Gaza Strip where it infiltrated. So I wanted to talk about that. And, and Nikos, you, you've studied a bit about the history of this. So tell us a bit about what your reactions are and how you understand that kind of the use of those kinds of means, where do they come from? Right. So when we see the quantity of the brutality and the optics of it, the fact that they were recorded, of course, our reaction is I've never seen something like that before. But actually, there is a historical context which is a bit more nuanced. So first of all, terrorism has been in the toolkit of the Palestinians from very early. In the 1950s, it took the form of raids by the by Fedayeen, the so-called Freedom Fighters of Palestine, raids to Israeli communities that were not that different from the raid we saw from Hamas on Saturday. So the idea is we go and terrorize com isolated Muslim communities in order to make their life unlivable. But the biggest shift happens after the Six-Day War in 1967. So before the Six-Day War, the number one strategy, hope for the Arabs was that the Arab countries around Israel would overwhelm it with military operations, with actual war offenses, and they would throw the Jews to the sea as was their goal. In 1967, after the Six-Day War, they realized that this will not happen. The decisive military victory by conventional army will not happen. So they come up with a new tactic. And in this tactic, they bring on the forefront the Palestinians and they portray them as the David fighting a stronger Goliath. And they do this having in mind that this will have an appeal at the West, that this will make their cause a global cause. Because remember, this was the time of the Vietnam War. So many young people in the West view the idea of the guerrilla with a machine gun as something heroic or idealistic. So what is the tool of the freedom fight of the so-called freedom fighter of Palestine? Only his rifle and his will, his strong will and his heroism. This is how they portray it. So the idea is we don't have tanks, we don't have jets, but we are willing to do things that require strong character and determination. In other words, we are determined to commit acts of terrorism. So terrorism becomes the number one tool in the struggle of the Palestinians. And they are conscious about that. So targeting civilians is not, uh, let's say, something which is, 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 is not a collateral damage. Targeting civilians is an end in itself. 
So here we have, for example, one of the founding fathers of modern terrorism, George Habas, the infamous leader of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, talking to a journalist, Oriana Falazzi, in the early 70s, and this is what he told her. He told her that to kill a Jew far from the battlefield has more effect than killing hundreds of Jews in battle. So we want to kill Jews away from the battlefield. We want to kill civilians because this is more effective in terms of terrorizing Israel. And this is indeed what they did. So there was no atrocity that we saw on Saturday that has not already happened in the history of the of Palestinian terrorism. For example, we were we witnessed the spectacle of raiding communities. This had happened before and it had happened many times. One example is, for example, the Kiryat Shmona massacre, where 18 people, including 11 children, were massacred in the 70s. How did the Palestinian Authority reward the people who committed this atrocity? They gave them a seat in the executive committee of the PLO. So this was not an, an act of random people. This was something that the Palestinian Authority rewarded. We were shocked on Saturday by seeing the Palestinians mutilating dead bodies. Have we seen this before? We've seen this before. In 1972, when Black September made the terrorist attack in the Munich Olympics. We were shocked by seeing children being targeted, but we've seen this before. We've seen this in the Malot massacre, where the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine machine gunned children at point blank. And we were shocked on Saturday when we saw that elderly people were targeted and weaker people were targeted. But again, we've seen this before. Remember 1985, the hijacking of the, of the ship Achille Lauro, where Palestinian terrorists executed a 69-year-old Jew who was on a wheelchair. And he, they threw him to the sea with his wheelchair. So again, terrorism and brutality is not an accident, is a conscious choice by the Palestinian movement, and it has been a conscious choice at least since the 1950s and even more from the 1960s. Craig, do you want to add anything to this in terms of the goals and the, the means? Yeah, so the people are horrified by, or at least good people, are horrified by what has, what they've seen happen on Saturday and the stories coming out now. Nico's recounted some of them. It's true that we've seen all of this before. And what should be horrifying but isn't to people, it's there's a logic to that. Given their goals, it makes sense of what they're doing. If your goal is, as Hamas's founding goal is, to wipe out Israel, that doesn't mean just wiping out Israel's soldiers. It's not as though they're going to just attack military bases. It's to wipe out every single Israeli. Soldiers, civilians, women, elderly, children. It, it, it's the complete destruction of Israel. And if that is your goal, and if people would take seriously that that is their goal, then yeah, this is part of the means to that goal. And what makes the corruption is that people are fighting for that goal. And more fundamentally then, it's not even the goal of wiping out Israel's a means to establishing an Islamic theocracy. The, the Hamas is not different from the regime in Iran. It's not different from the Taliban. 
what we saw when they were elected, and we can talk about the travesty of that, of that there were elections in, um, in the Gaza Strip, is a civil war with their political opponents, whatever, they're not really political, of another military faction, another gang. It's, you have anarchy in effect, two gangs fighting out. They drove them out so that they can make, obtain a dictatorship in the Gaza Strip. That's the, the, what is inhuman about them is their goal. And yes, if your goal is inhuman, you'll use inhuman means. But the idea of that, the, what needs to be denounced is that the, what they did is targeted children so on, versus what should be denounced is Hamas as an organization should not exist. It's evil in its founding documents and founding purpose. And if people in the West are unwilling to say that and to say that unequivocally, they can't view themselves as I'm against these atrocities. Just one one more layer to that. So Hamas, as you said, in its founding document, makes it very plain what it's out to do. And it also relates its goal to a religious justification. The prior Palestinian founding documents, if you think about the different organizations that try to organize the factions, they were couched in different terms, but their goal was the same. So their goal was to, quote, liberate Palestine from the river to the sea, which just means all of Israel had to be, quote, unquote, liberated. And they couched this as, well, we're going to create, some of them at least, said we're going to create a democratic uh, secular society, which was a lie. That was not what they were trying to do. But they were, it was a, in such a way that it fit the cultural, the dominant cultural ideas. They were left-leaning in many cases and 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 seen as Nico Stewart describing them as sort of, they saw themselves as similar to the fighters in Vietnam. And there was a certain mystique around that and sort of Latin American so-called freedom fighters, there was a certain mystique around that. And they presented themselves that way. And I don't think it's, I don't, my point is not that it was harder for people to get that that was their goal in the past, but there was a way in which they embedded themselves into a more conventional mainstream intellectual space than Hamas is doing today. And in that sense, it was um, uh, easier to hide what they were actually trying to do, or at least it was easier for people to ignore what they're trying to do. I think what Hamas has done, I think this is an important change. And, and this is also true of Islamic Jihad, which is another faction that has similar ideological framework, is they're not pretending to do anything that you could swallow as, well, this is going to lead to a better society. There's, they're telling you we're going to create a theocracy. That's basically what the outcome is. And in order to do that, we're going to kill everyone who stands in our way. And I think the, the, there's a way in which the, the, the rise of Hamas about 15 years ago to the, the place of dominance and for it taking over territory, that was a real turning point in this conflict in the sense that there was, for the people who wanted to hide behind euphemisms about a democratic Palestinian state, about liberation, there was nowhere to hide anymore. And I think that's significant. And I think I want to pick up on this point you raised, Ankar, about how Hamas got to power. So it, I think there's two parts to that story. One part is America's culpability in enabling them to gain power. And that was as part of the Bush administration's forward strategy of freedom, a crusade for democracy in the Middle East. They insisted on there being elections in the Palestinian territories. 
And this was against the, the Israelis were saying this is crazy. A lot of people were telling them, including some European uh, uh, groups and some NGOs that you would not expect to be speaking out about this, were saying this is crazy. You cannot have Hamas as part of any kind of elected uh, representative government. And the Bush administration persisted in this. They're, they put the idea of democracy above anything else and in a perverse view of what democracy is. And then they were surprised that Hamas won by a landslide. And I think that speaks to the, the complete detachment from reality about what dominant ideas there are in the region. So that's part one. So Hamas actually wins in a fair election and it was uh, seen as fair and monitored by outside forces. And then happens what you're describing, which is they wrangle with another faction, the, the uh, rival Palestinian group Fatah, which leads the PLO, and they fought a civil war, and then they completely dominated the Gaza Strip. And so what you see is the United States enabling these totalitarian Islamists to gain power through legitimate means. And then they, they drop the mask of caring about elections and they, they dominate Gaza through brutality at the time. So to me, it's really important that people pay attention to this issue you're raising, which is this is their goal. They're not hiding it. And enabling them is to be an accomplice to their crimes. It's, it's, the Bush administration literally cr helped create an Islamic totalitarian regime in Gaza. And I think that is a, a, uh, a crime that the United States foreign policy has to pay for. And it's actually even worse. So this, the, the whole, I mean, much of what happened after 9-11 is seared in my memory, but I went back because uh, I actually was talking about this some in a class I was teaching as well. So I went back to read some of Bush's statements in um, 2006. He knows full well, and the whole Bush administration knows full well that Hamas is a terrorist organization. They talk of them as a terrorist organization that has butchered people before. Um, but yeah, it, democracy is democracy. So if we're going to have elections and if they're running candidates, what are you going to do? And so maybe they will get elected. And when they get elected, Bush tells the nation that what he expects is for them to change. And you can view that as a kind of cynical element to it. I don't. I, and this is part of what people could not take seriously of what happened after 9-11. Bush's whole worldview is dominated and animated by religion. He, the, the, it, I mean, he's an evangelical, he's born again, and that is how he looks at the world. And so his expectation was that, well, they're religious, so how bad could they be? And why wouldn't they change? And if, like, right after 9-11, he said, well, Islam is a religion of peace, so whatever you do, don't say anything bad about Islam. So, so there was an expectation, and I think it, like, you have to take it, it's not some cynicism. There was an expectation well, religion is obviously a force for the good. So now maybe that they've actually have some power, they're going to do something good. And that is such a, it's so philosophically evil. The idea that like you don't know anything about Western history, the idea that religion is a force for a good, it can't, really, it can't lead to butchery, war, and barbarism. It's, but it was that, that, that was part of the whole of why they thought, oh yeah, this might work. There was one other aspect to this, which was, so you're describing the Bush administration and, and Bush his, himself and his religion dominated views. 
I think there was a reinforcing of that from a very different perspective from what I think of as sort of philosophically pragmatic. So the, the abandonment of principles and the view that ideas and philosophical ideas aren't really what move people. There's always some other sort of more concrete, sometimes political, economic considerations. And, and someone whose work I follow uh, described this as the pothole theory of, uh, of government. And the idea was, and this is other people than, than Bush saying, well, once Hamas gets into power, they'll have to fix all these potholes and have to fix the water, they have to keep the country running. And, and the responsibility of being in power will be a force for them to quote, moderate and become just much more conventional and less threatening. And, and just, they'll grow up in effect. They're, they're, they're raging teenagers now, but once they have to earn a living and, and, and be accountable to their population, as everyone knows, then, then they will be much easier to deal with, and maybe there'll be a way for us to talk to them. And that, I think of that as the epitome of seeing politics as empty of ideas, empty of philosophical meaning. And it's such a fa fantastic projection. So maybe there are people in American government or European government who they start off with more, uh, uh, with views that are farther out from what is conventional. And then when they get into power, they have to tack into the center. That does happen. But that kind of change is so different from what we're talking about here. That Those people I don't even think of as ideologically driven or even have ideas. They're, they're just conventional politicians who are getting elected to get elected and, and wield power. Uh, and, and sometimes for reasons of graft and, and personal aggrandizement. But when you think of that, everyone must just be like our politicians. They're like Bill Clinton. He's he's harder to the left when he's running for office. Then he tacks to the center. Oh, everyone's going to be like that. Hamas is going to have to fix the potholes. Therefore, it's going to. And to to me, that is is it makes Bush's point seem credible because it's coming from another direction. And it, you don't have to be a, a a born again Christian to be sympathetic to Hamas. You can just be a wonkish political analyst and say, yeah, well, Hamas. There's odds that will mod, quote moderate. And I think. All the people who are saying that now should be, it didn't take this long for them to have evidence against their view, but if they can't see the absurdity of what they were advocating back then, today, then I don't think they ever could. And Elan, these people were supposedly specialists in the area. So we've seen in, with Iran in 1979, and we've seen also with the rise of the Taliban, the exact opposite. People who, when they come to power, they become more bloodthirsty, they become more completely unhinged. So the fact that all these supposedly great minds around Bush didn't know that, something that happened within, not even within the lifetime, within the time where they already had a career in uh, geopolitics or whatever, this is something which is really unbelievable. Let's turn to another topic. I, I think it's important that we say um, something about the reactions that have come out so far. I think there's a, a number of different constituencies or different voices that are worth pausing on. And I'll, I'll, I'll mention a couple of things that I've seen. I'm interested in your thoughts on this too. So one is uh, in the immediate day or two since Hamas's invasion and, and its, uh, its attack, we saw the Eiffel Tower, we saw the Brandenburg Gate illuminated with the flag of Israel in solidarity. I think I, I might have even seen the, the British Houses of Parliament, there, lots of iconic buildings. And this has now become a kind of signature step that people take in sympathy. We saw this after Ukraine was invaded by Russia. We saw Ukrainian flags flying from places you wouldn't expect them to be. 
And that I thought as an initial step that that seems like, well, yes, that's the, that's the least you could do. And uh, if you take it earnestly, then that's a good sign. But the question is, what does that mean? Is it anything but symbolic? Is it just an empty symbol in other words? And what have you seen from heads of state? So I think uh, I was reading the statements from uh, Joe Biden yesterday. He had a pretty strong statement yesterday. What have you seen from other leaders? I'm curious your reactions to that. Let's start with, with you, Nikos. Well, my reaction is that it reminds me a lot the reactions after the Charlie Hebdo massacre, which means that on a, on a superficial level, of course, everyone is uh, shocked. For people who don't remember, this was the ex this was the murder of uh, many journalists of the satirical French magazine Charlie Hebdo. But when the first reaction passed, and when it was time to evaluate why did this attack happen by these uh, by these jihadists, then people were more and more cautious not to take too far to the logical conclusions, which was obviously that we have a problem here. We have an ideology which is destructive and will not stop anywhere. And the, the first thing to do is to defend the right to free speech and then also to name and point out to which this ideology is. So with Charlie Hebdo, if you remember, in the first days, there was even a protest by heads of states. But then soon we started the uh, but. I, of course, condone the murder, but uh, we have to respect uh, religion. Then, well, this shouldn't happen, but Charlie Hebdo pushed it too far by ridiculing religion. So I wonder whether the same thing will happen now. That in the beginning, of course, we have the obvious reaction, which is horror and the disgust at the murders. But then when we have to go to the root of the topic, when we have to go to the essence of who are the bad guys here? Why are they bad? What needs to be done to defeat them? I'm, I want to see what will happen. But if experience or something is that usually when the first reaction is over, then people don't want to go to see what the fundamental issue at stake is. Yeah, my my reaction has been that yeah, Biden's statement yesterday actually was pretty strong, but by and large, it's um, it has it has a feel that this is what I'm supposed to say, rather than a genuine conviction and a genuine that there needs to be some radical change in policy, like th that this has happened again and again and again um, on different scales but the essence of what that they're trying to destroy israel has happened for decades and decades and if that if one can't think if, i mean it's part of what should have happened with 9 11 and it happened there was more of a willingness i think to say yeah maybe we have to radically change course i don't get any feeling that that's true and just in the european union it's they give money to palestinians and there were there's debates of look it wasn't even authorized to put up these lights on the eiffel tower and things like that we didn't approve of this and there was some statements over oh, cutting off aid no no we're not doing that and, so, and there's backtracking 24 hours 48 hours after the event and i think that is when it actually you're getting their actual views and ideas that's what it actually is and it's it's again that anybody who thinks there's two sides here 
that are um, okay, maybe Israel's a little better, but they've both got like real claims and what we need is a negotiated settlement and some you don't negotiate with someone whose whole cause is your destruction. And the the anybody who's telling Israel that that that's what you should be seeking is not on the side of Israel. Um, and I mean, can you imagine that the, uh, imagine Canada was the we that was run by people whose goal was the destruction of um, the U.S. Now, I mean, it, they wouldn't be able to do it, but say we we'd launched terrorist attacks. I'm Canadian, so I'm from you know Canada's. The it can't be. Well, what's needed is a negotiated settlement, and so on. What the U.S. should do is crush the people if there really were a regime in Canada that's goal is the elimination of the U.S. What that should ensure is their own elimination, and the, it, the U.S. should not negotiate, and so on. and the same is true of Israel. I, I want to talk a bit about the other side of the American political space. Well, not the other side, but just people who are to, seen as to the left of Joe Biden, and I think there's an interesting development there. So one of the things that's happened in the last few days is there were rallies in different capital cities new york uh and i think in, in europe different capital cities there of people coming in solidarity with israel and support of israel but also and this is separate rallies or counter rallies of people who are there saying that they they support the cause of free palestine and some of them were were not even mincing around with that they they were flying uh, palestinian flags and they were cheering what hamas was doing and so the question came up is, how could you do that? How do you, what do you think of these people? And what is uh, the, the particular event in New York City was uh, promoted? So this is a pro-Palestinian, which I think of as a pro-Hamas rally in New York City. And it was promoted by, I think they call themselves the Democratic Socialists of America, of which uh, I think um, AOC was or is a member and some other politicians are a member. And, and it's just seen as the, the edge of, so the left edge of what the um, political space is in the United States. And they came out with a, not exactly an apology for promoting this event, but just a clarification of where they stand, which was not much of a clarification. So there is a kind of uh, uh, tension, I think, between what the sort of things that you said Biden had said, uh, people can find that statement online. Um, I, I took it as a little bit more earnest than, than maybe you're reading it, but I, 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 I'm sympathetic to your account. That versus, I think, uh, if you think about the, there are four politicians in the US who are called the squad, and they are seen as um, very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. One of them is a Palestinian. I think her name is Tlaib. And I saw a video of her being chased by a journalist asking her, do you condemn these attacks? And she's just being chased through the corridor for about minutes. And the journalist is saying, do you condemn, do you condemn what Hamas is doing? She doesn't respond. And I think the, the reason she's not responding is because she's not willing to do it. And, and it's not because she's being uh, cornered by a journalist. So there is this... Um, uh, conflict or split, at least within the American political space, between the self-styled socialists and uh, 
and the more mainstream Democrats like Biden. I'm curious about your thoughts on that, uh, Ankara or, or Nikos. I can start by talking about how many academics and how many student societies reacted to this. So this became viral yesterday on Twitter. We saw many student unions uh, unapologetically saying we are not going to condemn the attack and then giving their support to basically Hamas. So it's obvious to say that this is bad. The question is what exactly motivates these people? What is the intellectual ammunition they have in having these horrible positions? And reading these statements, I came down to two themes that I think are worth discussing. The first is this eagerness they saw to say, we will not condemn Palestine. We will not condemn, sorry, Hamas. We will not condemn the attacks. Why would someone do this? Well, because in their moral relativism, in the view they have of the world, any moral system is a system of power. So what they're saying is that morality, as we know it, Western morality, is a tool for the strong to rule the weak. Or to put it in their words, morality is a discourse that was used by the colonial powers to rule over their subjects. Therefore, they say, if we judge Hamas, what we're doing is we are perpetuating an, an exploitative discourse. We are perpetuating colonialism itself. Therefore, we find ourselves in this very weird situation where you see acts of horror in front of you. And yet, because you've been, I don't want to say brainwashed, because these people have free will, because you've been persuaded that there is no such thing as an objective morality, you see the rape, the horror the, in front of you, but you say, I cannot comment on that because this would be uh, imposing my view on people who I'm in no position to judge. They are different. They have their own culture, their own morality. Who am I to judge them? Yeah, I, I'm curious what your reaction to this, Alon, is because you've been on campus and seen this. We've both seen it a lot in regard to 9-11, in regard to the Danish cartoon crisis of, of a certain element of the student body. And Nikos, you put it as they're brainwashed and, or, and then said, well, no, they're not because they have free will and they've been persuaded. Yeah, I think they're a little bit victims and mostly um, what they're doing is evil. So it's true, they learn a lot of this from the classroom or at least from certain classes and courses and professors and that in itself is a travesty that this goes on in american universities and that this is what is taught and so they're being taught this but it you still have free will you still have judgment and you still have moral judgment and what is revealing uh, so i went back to read hamas some of hamas's founding documents and the the modifications to them in two i think it's in 2017 the modification and the modifications are couched in this kind of language so what the student statements basically are are paraphrases of hamas's what it's not the founding documents but the revision of hamas's founding document or charter so they talk about israel but it, now it's often it's the zionist project as a racist colonial project and so on. And you find that in the, in the student um, statements. So 
there's a way in which you can read the, the statement and the Harvard one is the, I think the one that's making the rounds, the, the one people have heard about of various student organizations at Harvard, but there's more than that. And there's been more demonstrations and demonstrations in places like Detroit. And so um, the, the, that statement you can think of as it's, they're almost spokesmen for Hamas, echoing their talking points. And part of to get at the motivation here, it is a nihilistic motivation. It is a love of destruction for destruction. And they're students, so it's possible there's some element of that in their soul and something better that's been twisted and twisted partly by what they've been taught in the classroom, but it's not only that. And part of the evidence for that is if you actually cared about individual Palestinians and individual lives and prosperity, you would recognize that the one nation in the Middle East that stands above every other nation is Israel. And it would be, how can the other places be more like Israel? Not how can we wipe Israel off the map? How do we gain that prosperity, that freedom, um, uh, that ability to live? And how do we model that? How do we learn from that? And the fact that Hamas is a dictatorship, and that is what the students, oh, we don't have a problem with that. And we don't have a problem if what they've opposed in Gaza is a religious dictatorship in which everyone in Gaza is terrified of them um, and uh, of, of, of executions. And, and so it's not right to think of that Hamas just terrorizes Jews. They have a special animus against Jews, but they terrorize their own population. And the fact that the students, that that is, yeah, we're okay with that. And to regard that as your pro-Palestinian, in the sense of pro-anyone in these places that actually wants a better life, wants to live in peace, and wants to emulate all the good things about Israel, you've sold them out and betrayed them. And that they masquerade around, like that they care about justice, freedom, and people's actual lives. It, it, I mean, it really is a moral travesty and they should be called out by the universities and by other campus groups on camp, other student bodies that like, we find this morally abhorrent. Nikos, did you want to chime in? I... Yeah, just to add one more element on, uh, on how these people think. So many people have seen probably some uh, chapters of Black Lives Matter posting these horrendous, uh, I would call them memes with the paragliders and saying basically unapologetically we are with that. So again, someone might think, how do you end up dehumanizing the victims at that point? And the answer is tribalism. The answer is how they, their minds and the way they view the world. They view the world based on groups. And in 2020, everyone applauded them for viewing the world in such a way. So if you view the world through the prism of the group, first of all, this is the easiest way to dehumanize others, but this is how they view it. They say, we are oppressed, we've been told we're oppressed, so people who are oppressed are the people who did the massacre. Therefore, they, the people who 
are the oppressors had it coming. So when they view these uh, women begging for their lives, they didn't see individuals. They saw members of group, the group of the settler. That's how they call them, the, the settler, the occupier. Therefore, any sense of justice, any sense of even like the most humane mercy is gone. So this is the effect that tribalism has. It completely distorts how you view the world. It completely distorts your moral compass. And some of us in the summer of 2020 were saying that it is a huge mistake. It is very dangerous to make tribalism the only game in town. In 2020, people thought that racial thinking is something progressive. They thought that there is good racism, but there is only one type of racism, the racism that makes you dehumanize, the racism that at the end of the day turns you to a monster who would celebrate such attacks. I wanted to bring some of these threads together because your point, Ankara, about the Hamas charter and then the modification of it. So the, the original charter is reflective of the dominance and the rising dominance of the Islamist movement in the region. It, it was Hamas is born precisely because Islamist ideas are coming to prevail and there's real energy behind them in the 1980s. And the modification, as you're describing it, is it it has echoes in it of this sort of academic framing of these issues in terms of colonialism and race race thinking. Um, that I think is a feature of this conflict in the sense that it what both of those points are true of other factions and it's been true of the Palestinian cause forever. So it's not as if the Palestinian cause originated all of its ideas from the very beginning. I mean, some of them are essentially tribal religious and so they're they're familiar, but always there was influences from German um, nationalist thinking, Marxism, Leninism. They were all intellectual influences on the groups that Nikos was talking about, some of the this, uh, ostensibly secular leftist Palestinian factions. They were just echoing the kind of uh, ideas that you would have heard from Latin American leftists and from Che Guevara, who was a, a hero to them. And at the same time, there's the, so there's there's sort of two dimensions. One is sort of European intellectual ferment, the sort of the, the post enlightenment views in academia, sometimes called postmodernism, that becomes a major influence. And that there's a way in which uh, academia or intellectuals in academia have been a major force for rationalizing and whitewashing this cause in effect by giving it this kind of vocabulary by reframing it in terms that you've been describing nikos that this is a white settler colonialist project and that is adopted by the factions because it's convenient it's helpful it works and that i think is an important feature of uh, the movement so just to give one other concrete before i i tie this together if you go back to the famous UN speech that Yasser Arafat gave, at the time Yasser Arafat was the Palestinian leader. He was the poster child for this, and he was celebrated as a freedom fighter. And so this was in the time, just in the sort of post-Vietnam period, when guerrilla fighting, guerrilla warfare was seen as as prestigious and and, and uh, heroic. He was invited to speak at the UN, and it, it's worth reading his speech and watching it. It's menacing. But the comments that he makes, you could see in them the influence of what was at the time fashionable intellectual ideas. 
And that is one of the places where you, you hear the Palestinians throwing around the idea that Israel is a, a kind of apartheid state, which is a reference to the racial segregation laws in South Africa. Just to, as a sidebar, I don't think that's true. I think that is another kind of lie and smear against Israel. We should talk have a conversation about that another time. But the point in mentioning this, that Arafat in 74, I think this was happening, was 74, 72, I forget exact date. So six months after the massacre in Kiryan Smona, five months after the massacre in the school. This is how the, inter right. the international community rewarded PLO for these monstrosities. With a standing ovation, with a standing ovation. So um, he is making these points and it's, it's clear that there's an influence from intellectual trends in academia and in the wider intellectual space. And it becomes absorbed into the movement because it's it's useful. It makes it more legitimate. And you hear it echoing not only by students, but also by you hear it echoing in the media, in, in scholarly work. So you can't really understand what's happening in Israel today and what's been happening for the last decades if you rip it out of a wider intellectual context, both the Islamist, the rise of Islamist ideas in the region, the influence of academic uh, uh, framing for this whole debate and the kind of things that we're seeing in the streets at rallies that those those all are reflections of what i think of as perverse philosophic ideas but that this is the power of irrational ideas they drive people to justify evil and to whitewash it and to, to enable it i think that is the power of irrational ideas and that's part of what i think of as why this is so important for us as a philosophical organization, because we're here to advocate for the rational ideas, for helping people understand that philosophy, philosophic ideas shape societies. And if you have good ideas, and if you're willing to uphold them, if you have integrity to them, the world will be a better place. You can achieve things, you can grow, you can develop, you can move society forward and individuals can, be, can thrive. But to the extent that philosophical ideas are irrational, this is what you get. You get, it's, it's one of the, elements fueling this conflict. It, it, and I think that's an, an important feature for understanding what's going on. And let me say something about the, so you're bringing, which I agree with fully, the intellectual dimension and the responsibility of, of academics throughout the Western world for enabling what we've seen both in the Middle East, but uh, in many other parts of the globe. The moral dimension, and this particularly, let me put an emphasis on students who think of themselves as I'm idealistic, I care, I wanna see the world become a better place. There is above all else, one thing that you have to champion, which is capitalism. It is the only social system that has brought prosperity to the world and a prosperity that the pre 18th century, nobody could have dreamed of the way that we live now in the 21st century. It wasn't even possible in people's imagination to get like, well, that we're talking, I mean, Nikos is in, in Greece. I, I'm in the, we're in the US that we just talk so easily like this. People couldn't even imagine this. And this is all um, the, the enormous amount of progress of freedom of wealth has been brought by this one system and what they learn in academia and this is part of that the the both the immorality and the injustice of what so many academics do what they learn is 
know what you should be. Is this a champion of something, of socialism, of democratic socialism? It used to be communism. Um, it, they learn, well, there's nothing wrong with religious theocracies and so on. If This is what they want in the Middle East and so on. There's, and part of a system of capitalism is a separation of church and state. And there's a real reason and arguments for that separation. And when you see that implemented, even if not implemented fully, that is part of what brings prosperity to places. If you actually cared about this, the what these people need is not aid and, oh my God, is aid to the Gaza Strip going to be cut off or not? What they need and what we should have exported is the ideas of the founding fathers of this is what it means to create a nation dedicated to prosperity. And they needed that in Africa. They needed that in South America. They needed that in the Middle East. And if you're not doing that, and if what you're actually teaching them, oh no, emulate Soviet Russia or China or Iran, you're leading them to destruction. And, 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 to, and it's unquestionable when you look at the history of the 20th century and you look at the difference between North Korea and South Korea, East Germany and West Germany, if you look at what happened with Hong Kong and so on, there, we know what the road to prosperity is. And people can go down that road by themselves if you give them the right ideas. They don't need perpetual aid and help and so on. They can build a life for themselves, but they re need the right ideas and the right social system. And the United States has demonstrated what that system is. And if you're not a champion of that system and of wanting to export it around the world, that the principles of the Declaration of Independence are universal principles, you're not on the side of peace, you're not on the side of prosperity, and you're not on the side of the people of anybody in these regions who genuinely wants a better life. Let me acknowledge uh, the, all of our viewers. Thank you for being with us here on the live stream. I wanted to acknowledge those who've given us super chat donations. We really appreciate your support. That's part of what makes our work possible and our ability to bring Ayn Rand's ideas and, and an objectivist perspective to these important issues. So thank you all. We'll try to get a couple of questions in and what we're going to do, we're not going to get to all the questions perhaps today, but we're going to roll them over. We'll do more episodes on this issue along with some of the regular kind of topics we deal with on New Ideal Live. So uh, expect to hear more from us on these issues, but let's take a couple of questions here. Uh, let me see what's on the list. Some of these are comments. I'm just going to acknowledge them. So one question or comment is, if by chance Hamas succeeded in wiping out Israel, what would they do next? What would the Middle East without Israel look like 10 years from now? I, I think it looks like Syria. It looks like failed states left and right. And it looks a bit like the Taliban, but maybe more like Iran somewhere in the middle. It, it, there's no question that if Hamas gets what it wants, it will be a devastating outcome for everybody, I think. And it, there's there's no reality in which there's an upside here. There's just, it's just a question of how bad it's going to be, whether it looks like Afghanistan, or it looks like Iran, and how much they'll get from outside to keep them uh, afloat. Nikos, and the end goal comment? of Hamas is not a Palestinian state. That's intermediate. The end goal of Hamas is a caliphate. Yeah. So it's much more like ISIS or, or one of those uh, groups. Uh, let's see what else we can fit in here. Uh, you want to take the question about Iran? 
as the best. Yeah, there are a couple in here. Why don't you read out the one you're noticing? Yeah, so that it was, I, I, may, and I may have said this Saturday, that the Iran, of all the countries in the Middle East, Iran seems like the one that most plausibly there's a significant element of the population that is actually oriented towards something like freedom and that you could imagine that you might be able to establish a better government there that would last in a way that you could not, for instance, in Iraq. And that's part of the travesty of that our target after 9-11 was Iraq and that we're going to try to rebuild there and or we're going to bring elections in the Gaza Strip and so on. And part of the evidence of this is of looking what the protests that happen in Iran in the face of a religious theocracy and the courage of some of the young people there. And I mean, there's been there's now ongoing protests for at least a year, but they, they've periodically broke out. They broke out during the Obama administration and they got so little U.S. support that it, it was appalling of what the Obama administration did at that time. But there, that's part of the, there's other pieces of evidence, I think, but that's part of the evidence that, and what they want to throw off is this kind of religious tyranny. Don't tell us we have to wear the veil and so that, and the way that they're protesting, that it's, it, it, they seem like they're the civilized force and the regime they're facing is barbaric. And that is part of that. If you could imagine that we had a removed, instead of removing Saddam Hussein, we had removed the Iranian regime. You could imagine that there's people in the country that you could actually work with then to build something that is more like Israel than like Saudi Arabia. Let's talk about, let's do one more question. And as I said, we'll roll some of these over into another episode or a Q&A session. So the question is, how important is it to differentiate Hamas slash Islamists from Palestinians? And I, I take that to mean individuals in, Palestine, in the Palestinian territories or under Hamas who may or may not support them. And I think that is an, it's worth identifying that that is an important distinction. It's a difficult distinction to draw in the Gaza Strip because it's hard to know what the Palestinians think. And so th this question comes up, how many of them are supportive of Hamas? How many of them are, are unwilling hostages in effect because they can't leave or they don't, they don't have the way to, they're they're afraid to fight back or that there's really options for them to voice their opposition because of the consequences that will befall them i think there's probably people like that i wouldn't be surprised because as much as hamas and the other palestinian factions engage in thought control and they suppress free speech and they intimidate their own people people have free will and they can question and they can they can oppose and i, I think there's a reason to see Palestinians as just individuals who happen to be, who happen to identify themselves by this ethnic racial identity, which I think is a, a topic for another conversation as well. It's not clear what it means, but I think it is important to differentiate them. Having said that, I think the one thing that people lose sight of is that Hamas, as I said earlier, when they were put on the ballot, they won by a wide margin. They had significant popular support. And that, that, and then another piece of evidence for the kind of support that they get, I think it was in 2014 when there was a previous round of fighting where Hamas was firing rockets at Israel and Israel was retaliating. 
it's true that Hamas puts its weapons and its its rocket launchers in civilian places because it uses them as shields. But there were Palestinians in Gaza who chose to go to the roofs of buildings to become human shields. That's significant. That tells you that there are people who volunteer to support this cause, not only in fighting, but they, they volunteer with their, their bodies. So that is a significant uh, piece of evidence. I think the final thought I would, I would give here is that Again, to, to the points that came out about thinking of people as members of groups or tribes primarily, I think that is never good. And it's important to think of people as individuals and that if there's even one Palestinian in, Palestinian in Gaza who is hostile to Hamas, that, that, that's important to recognize that difference. It's, you, you can't attribute to everyone in a group the same view. Uh, so those are some of the thoughts on my end. Anything you guys want to add to this? Just to ask you to elaborate, so how does this, so then people will say though, so if these people died during the operation or during the, during a war, who is to blame? Because you know, the, the, the bomb that would have killed them is, uh, comes from Israel. So, uh, so who, who would be to blame then for their death? The, and this is referring to someone who's opposing Hamas. I think the answer is, yes, yes, yes. yeah, I think Hamas is responsible. It's responsible for the deaths of all the, the casualties on both sides because it initiated this war. It is the one that is motivated by destruction. There is no positive thing that Hamas is trying to accomplish. It's not retaliating for anything. It's there to destroy other people and other societies. There's no question that it is 100% responsible for all of the deaths. And I, I reject the, the international laws of war perspective or the kind of moral framing that is given to war tries to uh, reduce the culpability of the aggressor, which is the way I think of how some of these principles are applied. Uh, but I think it's a good topic. And, and as I was saying earlier, I think we should come back to some of these issues and we can have breakout conversations about the, precisely this kind of thing, because there's more to say about how to think about the uh, civilians and, and what is a civilian and how innocent can someone be in a society like this? And what does it even mean to be responsible these are important questions to think about and they're philosophical questions. So I, I, we should wrap up here unless there are any final thoughts from you, Ankar, but just give you a chance to, yeah. Uh, so one of the things I will mention is that uh, we have a lot of writings on the Middle East. We have, I wrote a book, came out five years ago, What Justice Demands America and the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. I highly recommend it. It's, it approaches the issue from what I think of as a, uh, uh, an objectivist framework that is the conscious goal of the book. And I, I think it, it's illuminating to the extent that I succeed in, in doing that. And I encourage people to take a look at it. You can read the first, I think the introduction or the, cha the first chapter, and it's available on Kindle and Audible. Unfortunately, the hardcover is sold out, but it is, there is a paperback coming soon. So if you're really holding out for paperback, just wait a day or so. But you can get that online. There's a short link on the screen. We'll put in the show notes as well. There's also other books. We have resources on New Ideal that we've published. We've collected them in a page. Articles about innocence and war. Articles about the background of Hamas. Lots and lots of materials, uh, including uh, two decades worth of writings on the American response to 9-11, which was a topic we've touched on numerous times in this conversation. That book is failing to confront Islamic totalitarianism, what went wrong after 9-11. We'll put that in the show notes as well. So thanks for being with us. We'll be back with more New Idea Live episodes in the coming 
week and hopefully more episodes and we'll be discussing this topic as things unfold. We always welcome your questions and comments and feedback. You can reach us by email, newideal at einran.org, and we read everything. We try to respond to many, and we often are uh, responding to them by generating completely new podcast episodes based on the questions people ask us. So let me thank you, Nikos, Onkar, and Tal, who's not on screen. Thanks for joining us today, and thank you all for being with us on this episode. And thanks for your support and interest in our work. We appreciate it. See you next time. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.